I want to give a quick shout out to everyone who supports the show on Patreon. You really help keep the lights on at Dirty History. And to everyone else, if you value the show as an educational resource, meaning you learn things you didn't know you wanted to know and laugh at things you didn't know you could, consider supporting the show on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash dirty history. Patreon.com slash dirty history. It may just be $1 a month for you, which only adds up to $12 a year. But for me in this show, it means everything. Honestly, it's almost like if you saw me on the streets and you and I both had free time, would you buy me a cup of coffee? That's what supporting the show on Patreon is. Help me make the show what we want it to be. Patreon.com slash Dirty History. Thank you. And before we get into the show, a quick disclaimer. Not only will this episode be relatively graphic in some sections and passages, that's a given considering the content and nature of the show, but the intro for the episode is an unabridged recounting of a specifically gruesome torture execution that I once briefly mentioned in the Torture Technique episodes way back when. I want to take a moment to explain my rationale for this. I realized that this account was the best way to kick off talking about executions and executioners as it sets up the analysis I think will be worthwhile for us regardless of my having mentioned this account before. And that's exactly what I did in that episode way back when I mentioned this account. We didn't take a hard dive into the context or meaning, but rather we focused on the technique employed to cause pain. It was a bridge to suit the torture technique episode and focused on technology rather than societal and cultural considerations. So no, this is not an episode you already heard before, I promise. And another thing, real quick before we get into the show, there are passages in this, um, in this quote that feature some intense French, and considering that I will most likely mangle the French, I mean, rather awfully, Woodrow, you will hear from him every once in a while to give you some uh, sultry French inflection. And with that, on with the show. On March 2nd, 1757, Damiens the Regicide was condemned to make the Amende Honorable before the main door of the Church of Paris, where he was to be taken and conveyed in a cart wearing nothing but a shirt holding a torch of burning wax weighing two pounds. Then, in the said cart, to the Place de Rêve, where, on a scaffold that will be erected there, the flesh will be torn from his breasts, arms, thighs, and calves, with red-hot pincers. His right hand holding the knife with which he committed the said parricide, burnt with sulfur. And on those places where the flesh will be torn away, poured molten lead, boiling oil, burning resin, wax, and sulfur. Then his body, drawn and quartered by four horses, and his limbs and body consumed by fire, reduced to ashes, and finally, his ashes thrown to the wind. That's what was supposed to happen. However, that's not what did happen. The passage goes on, Finally he was recorded, recounts the Gazette de Amsterdam of the 1st of April, 1757. Quote, This last operation was very long because the horses used were not accustomed to drawing. Consequently, instead of four, six were needed, and when that did not suffice, they were forced in order to cut off the wretch's thighs, to sever the sinews, and hack at the joints, 
It is said that, though he was always a great swearer, no blasphemy escaped his lips. But the excessive pain made him utter horrible cries, and he often repeated, My God, have pity on me, Jesus, help me. Bouton, an officer of the watch, left us his account, quote, The sulfur was lit, but the flame was so poor that only the top of the skin of the hand was burnt, and that only slightly. Then the executioner, his sleeves rolled up, took the steel pincers with which were especially made for the occasion, and which were about a foot and a half long, and pulled first at the calf of the right leg, then at the thigh, and from there the two fleshy parts of the right arm, then at the breasts. And though a strong, sturdy fellow, this executioner found it so difficult to tear away the pieces of flesh that he set about the same spot two or three times, twisting the pincers as he did so, and what he took away formed at each part a wound about the size of a six-pound crown piece. After these tearings of the pincers, Damiens, who cried out profusely, though without swearing, raised his head and looked at himself. The same executioner dipped an iron spoon in a pot containing the boiling potion, which he poured liberally over each wound. Then the ropes that which were harnessed to the horses were attached with cords to the patient's body. The horses were then harnessed and placed alongside the arms and legs, one at each limb. The horses tugged hard, each pulling straight on a limb, each horse held by an executioner. After a quarter of an hour, the same ceremony was repeated, and finally, after several attempts, the direction of the horses had to be changed. Thus those at the arms were made to pull towards the head, and those at the thighs towards the arms, which broke the arms of the joints. This was repeated several times without success. He raised his head and looked at himself. Two more horses had to be added to those harnessed to the thighs, which made six horses in all without success. Two or three attempts. And then the executioner Samson and he who had used the pincers each drew out a knife from his pocket and cut the body at the thighs instead of severing the legs at the joints. The four horses gave a tug and carried off the two thighs after them, namely that of the right side first, the other following. Then the same was done to the arms, the shoulders, the armpits, and the four limbs. The flesh had to be cut almost to the bone. The horses pulling hard carried off the right arm first and the other after. When the four limbs had been pulled away, the confessors came to speak with him, but his executioner told them that he was dead. The truth was that I saw the man move, his lower jaw, from side to side as if he was talking. One of the executioners even said shortly afterwards that when they had lifted the trunk to throw it on the stake, he was still alive. The four limbs were untied from the ropes and thrown on the stake, set up in the enclosure in line with the scaffold, and then the trunk and the rest was covered with logs, and fire was put to the straw mixed with this wood. In accordance with the decree, the whole was reduced to ashes. The last piece to be found in the embers was still burning at half-past ten in the evening. The pieces of flesh in the trunk had taken up to four hours to burn. The officers of whom I was one, as also was my son and a detachment of archers, remained in the square until nearly eleven o'clock. And the account goes on to say, quote, There were those who made something of the fact that a dog had lain the day before on the grass where the fire had been had been chased away several times and had always returned. But it was not difficult to understand that an animal found this place warmer 
than elsewhere. I'm Thomas Thompson, and this is Dirty History. The scene of Damien's death is intriguing. More than something shocking to begin the episode with, it is a snapshot of a whole penal system at work. A system, mind you, that is largely extinct. The public spectacle of a torture execution is rare these days. Foucault, who recounted aspects of Damien's execution, found that punishment is now the most hidden part of the penal system. That the entire economy of punishment had been redistributed. And I would tend to agree, where do most executions take place these days? In the walls of a prison facility, hidden away from the public eye. We are left with this this abstract idea that someone who committed a crime was imprisoned and then put to death. But we don't see it play out in front of us. We just internalize the understanding that committing a crime results in punishment. And it will likely be unfavorable for our chances to remain in the gene pool. We don't see it play out in front of us. We just internalize the understanding that committing a crime results in punishment. And it will likely be unfavorable for our chances to remain in the gene pool. And I like that term, especially for our purposes, the economy of punishment. Because... As the public spectacle of execution disappears, what happens to those who were simultaneously cursed by and the sole beneficiary of the act of executing? In fact, there were those whose entire financial livelihood depends on criminals being put to death. The executioner holds an interesting place in our present-day pop consciousness and arguably a more interesting place in the society in which he acted. Consider Damiens, the would-be assassin-turned-victim from the intro of this episode. Consider what he actually did. Damiens the Regicide. The title means that he attempted to assassinate Louis XV. He failed, though, not without stirring a fright. Damiens was able to nick Louis with a uh, penknife, causing Louis to call for a confessor, believing the wounds he sustained would be his end. He was said to have begged his wife the queen, for forgiveness for his multiple affairs, but it was all for naught. Louis would survive the attempt and go on to rule and continue his dalliance with his hanky-panky harem of royal hangers-on. Now, there is debate among historians over Damien's motive, with many suggesting mental illness. That said, think about the retribution brought upon him for his assassination attempt the utter indifference to his suffering by which he was dispatched. The the question then arises, was the punishment equal to the crime? The answer in terms of sheer human suffering and ferocity is no. The punishment, even by the standards of the heyday of head chopper offers, exceeded the ferocity and savagery of the original crime. And who was inflicting this heightened suffering but the executioner. A person who inflicted more pain and punishment upon Damiens than Damiens wrought upon his intended victim. And when viewed from this lens, one may start to pity the criminal, or at least not understand the purpose 
of the execution. And you wouldn't be alone in that. A contemporary of the spectacle penal system, Cesare Beccaria, an Italian criminologist and philosopher, found, quote, The murder that is depicted as a horrible crime is repeated in cold blood, remorselessly. The criminal system in the era of public demonstration carries with it an implication of shame and judgment upon those executing the aforementioned judgment. Which is a catch-22 that I think many of us can see. If we watch someone's head get lopped off just after witnessing his castration via white-hot knife and his toes popped off with a pair of pliers, I think we're all going to let out a collective HOT DAMN! Because despite the popularity of public executions on some level, spectators saw it as ugly to be punished, ugly to punish. And the executioner is on the surviving end of that bargain. The executioner is the person tearing the flesh from bones, swinging the sword, lighting the fire. The executioner is the half of the death that lives, at least in the public eye. So what is an executioner? Where does he fit in this so-called economy of punishment? Is an executioner a merciless killer of men and women? An apron-laden, blood-splattered, black-masked stone wall that is often the last thing so many people see? Or is an executioner something like the mountain from Game of Thrones? You know, I have to get my references in before they fade into obscurity, but again, while they themselves were not criminals, executioners were viewed as guilty of the same willful rejection of divine and human laws. Criminally, executioners were not guilty of murder, but socially, well, that's a different story. The executioner was cursed by his levying judgment against the condemned. The executioner was ostracized from society, but yet he was the strong arm of that same society. The executioner was a living, breathing contradiction of cultural mores and values. And I think that is a better job description for a classical executioner, strong arm of society. Because as an executioner, you were expected to do so much more than just execute. I mean, before they would ever reach the scaffold, the executioner was the dispenser of special interrogation. Quote, quote which is a euphemism for, quote, enhanced interrogation, which is a synonym for torture. That's right, folks. The executioner was also typically the torturer. They were often one and the same. And this may sound like there was a lot of freedom here, but torture wasn't dispensed willy-nilly. Every time someone was accused of a crime, it was not like the Bob the Town's headsman popped out of the shadows and threw some thumbscrews on. There was, at least in the Holy Roman Empire some rules. And these rules were laid out in the Constitutio Criminalis Carolina, which was a codified set of laws that determined when torture should be used, how it should be used, what kind of evidence or circumstances were needed for torture to be employed, what the implications of torture were, and what the strength of a confession obtained under torture was. Don't worry, I'll break down each bullet point there, that was, that was a lot. Because as it turns out, between 1000 and 1757, forensic evidence was not really a thing. There weren't inspectors swabbing for DNA and dusting for prints. If you wanted to find someone guilty of a crime, you needed to catch them red-handed, have some eyewitnesses, 
obtain a confession. And what's the best way to obtain a confession? Contrary to popular belief, it was not to threaten castration of the perpetrator. I said we cut off your junction! No, it seems that by codifying judicial inquisition, lawmakers understood that coercing a confession via torture brought into question the validity of the confession. Because, as it turns out, when you are um, turning thumbscrews, people will say whatever gets you to stop screwing their thumb. As I said, the origins of this document were in the Holy Roman Empire, which is Voltaire quipped, was neither holy nor Roman nor an empire. In fact, the document, it really just sets out rules on how to obtain a confession, and then what types of confessions there were. And the logic behind it ran that if you were a prosecutor, it is best to have a confession that was obtained free of pain. But it was better to have a confession obtained under torture than no confession at all. All said, they had the foresight to understand that torture complicates the process. For example, say there's an infanticide case. This is how the criminalist Carolina, aka the holy book on what should hurt and where, defines infanticide and how to determine whether or not torture should be used to inspire cooperation of the accused as follows. And this comes from an English translation. I don't speak much else than that, so if there's a little bit of a gap between the original Latin or German or whatever it was, that's why. Quote, When a girl, purportedly a maiden, comes under suspicion of having secretly had and killed a child, it shall be especially inquired whether she was seen with a large and unusual body and further, whether the body then became smaller, and she was then pale and weak. When such and similar is discovered, and where this girl is a person of whom such a suspected crime could be believed, then she shall be inspected by knowledgeable women in an enclosed place, TSA style. So far as that facilitates further inquiry, and if the suspicion is there confirmed, and nonetheless she will not confess... She may be tortured. So there's that. The document then goes on in the following article, quote, When, however, the baby was killed only such a short time before that the milk in the breast of the mother has not yet gone away, then she may be milked in her breasts, and when mother's milk is found in the breast, there is in consequence a strong presumption for the use of examination under torture. That's the kind of thing that the document lays out. They're prescriptive measures on when torture should be used in each individual kind of case. In an infanticide case, we look to see whether or not the mother appeared to be pregnant, and then not pregnant, and there's no baby. At which time we question her, we bring some knowledgeable women, some midwives in, and they look at her reproductive organs and then see if it looked like she gave birth, and if so, we can then torture her to find out what happened to the child. That's what the Criminalis Carolina, a.k.a. the holy book on what should hurt and where, lays out. And the document goes on for prescriptive measures on obtaining confessions for murder, secret poisoning, theft, sorcery, and quick aside, that will probably not be so quick, what if someone expires during torture? They don't get to make it to the scaffold. What was an executioner to do if someone seemingly dies during or as a result of special interrogation. 
Here's a hypothetical. Let's say you have someone chained to the wall, as you are one to do, and you walk in the room after a two-day break of torture, and the person is lying there, head slouched, and they don't appear to be breathing. Well, as it turns out, 18th century physicians had some techniques for figuring this conundrum out, because at the time, no one seemed to be too great at taking an accurate pulse, least of all a lowly executioner. But Jan Bondison laid out in his book, Buried Alive, there seems to be two school of thoughts for verifying death. The first involves inflicting pain to rouse the would-be corpse, and the second involves throwing in some measure of humiliation. And really, this is right up your alley if you are uh, if you're doing using torture to gain some information. Some popular suggestions were as follow. If you walk in and you think someone's dead, you could slice the soles of the unconscious person's feet and jam needles under their toes and fingernails. Because nothing wakes you up from a sleep like sliced soles of your feet and needles under your toes and fingernails. Conversely, you can get more creative and less macabre and assault the ears with, quote, hideous shrieks and excessive noises. There was also a variety of nipple pincers and tobacco enemas. Some physicians suggest simply to take a red-hot poker and insert it right up the, quote, rear passage. Jacob Winslow, a 17th-century anatomist, suggests pouring boiling wax on someone's forehead and warm urine in their mouth. There's that humiliation part. Others advocated for insects placed in the ears, while some were staunch believers of rhythmic tongue-pulling, which sounds less like a way to rouse the dead and more like a personal problem. However... There were those found, there were those that were fond of this good old-fashioned sharp pencils thrust up the nose trick. Pointed stick! Each of which all sound like worthy additions to the executioner's playbook, conscious or not. Now let's say someone doesn't die during a special interrogation and they live through it and they confess and you're found guilty of one of those previously stated crimes infanticide murder secret poisoning threat sorcery you know what let's just up the stakes and say someone is found guilty for murder murder then the executioner may be re-employed to put on a one of the following execution with the rope which was the most common kind of execution during the period we are discussing or they could be re-employed for a death by fire or death by drowning, which was common but less frequent. There was the venerable drawing and quartering, which was rare as it was reserved for the most heinous crimes. And finally, we had the death by sword, which was the most honorable way to go. It was reserved for nobles and very, very wealthy. There were other possibilities, don't get me wrong. Executions were only limited by the morbid creativity of the judges that laid them down, but... These were the most common techniques to be employed. Execution with rope, death by fire, death by drowning, drawing and quartering, death by sword. An interesting little side note was that often there was this childlike literalness in how the punishment was to be matched to the crime. Like we saw with Damien's. You had a sword in your right hand, well we're going to burn your right hand. Then we're going to rip off skin and pour molten, molten liquids on it. There's this weird... Well, your right hand was used, so we're going to do something to your right hand. Your left foot was used, we're going to do something to your left foot. That kind of deal. Except, in the case of women. Women pose a difficulty in how to properly execute them. Because it was found that hanging a woman was considered indecent, since onlookers could peer up the deceased's skirt. 
that in and itself is heinous, even in the most extreme circumstances. Men seemingly can't keep perversion in check for some reason, but also, do people not know what happens when you're killed? You expel the contents of your bladder and bowels, which is disgusting. That said, you couldn't behead a woman because that was again reserved for honorable men. And live burial was abolished as it was seen as barbarous to watch the soon-to-be-dead squirming around their half-filled grave. Except in cases of infanticide, live burial was very much considered a suitable punishment for that. Therefore, that left you with two options. Burning at the stake and drowning. Drowning was the more common execution employed in the Middle Ages. Typically, the woman was bound, placed in a sack, and thrown in the river. Once, a woman escaped her bindings and the bag and came up gasping for breath at the dock. Soon after, the addition of an executioner using a pole to keep the purchaser of the proverbial farm underwater until they were removed from the gene pool was adopted. All told, the executioner was involved in and expected to excel at killing and torture at a rate and variance greater than perhaps any other kind of person or person in history. Most repeat killers or serial killers or whatever it is stick to a single method, you know, stabbing, shooting, strangling, bludgeoning, dissecting, whatever it is, but an executioner was not allowed a single technique to excel at. He had to master all as he served at the leisure of the judicial system. However, the day-to-day tasks of the executioner do not end with the execution, ironically. Many executioners were also placed in charge of garbage disposal, burning the bodies of suicides, and in some instances, overseeing the city's brothels. Taken altogether, the executioner or strong arm of society was placed at the lowest rung of the society whose laws he upholds. Much like a leper, thief, prostitute, or butcher, the executioner was viewed as unclean, as beneath, well, basically everyone else. There was this social curse of being an executioner, of coming in contact with an executioner. An executioner was other to respectable society. He was outside of respectable society, which in and of itself, as I said before, is interesting and ironic. For the only thing keeping respectable society respectable was the structures of power, order, justice, and law, among other things, but those four are crucial. The enforcement of such principles was placed squarely on the courts and the enforcer of the courts, the executioner. You cannot enforce your most crucial laws. You cannot punish capital offenses without the executioner. He is the linchpin in maintaining the status quo of respectable society. Yet, he is defending a system in which he can never participate. That makes him one of the dirtiest figures in history. Because... Most executioners were forced to live outside the city walls or near an already unclean location within the city, typically the slaughter yard or a lazar house, which is for lepers. 
their legal disenfranchisement was just as thorough. No executioner or family member of an executioner could hold citizenship, be admitted to a guild, hold public office, or serve as a legal guardian or trial witness, or even write a valid will. But yeah, the social curse of being an executioner extended to the executioner's family as well. Hangmen were not allowed to enter churches, bathhouses, taverns, or other public buildings. There were no legal protections of an executioner from mob violence. So what does this last part mean? Let's say you're an executioner carrying out a particularly brutal torture execution. You have your red-hot pincers, you're tearing flesh, and you're feeling good about your work. Of course, the torturee is not much enjoying their station. He's screaming his head off, praying and repenting. You tear away a large chunk of his calf, and all goes silent. Did you kill him? Did he go into shock? No, he awakens with a new religious epiphany, enlightened that upon death he shall enter a higher plane of existence, and maybe that day the crowd is feeling forgivable, which often happened. There was accounts of crowds feeling empathetic for the condemned, or even wishing they were the condemned, and having noticed their religious epiphany, saying, wow, I wish that could have happened to me, but alas, I am a blacksmith, I'm not doing much with my life. But things would not really play out well for your sake if you're the executioner. Let's get something more concrete. There's been accounts of executioners taking too many swings to get through a beheading, and the crowd turns against him, and stones the executioner to death. There is no legal action to protect the executioner from that kind of violence. And to put the cherry on top of it all, the executioner wasn't only doomed to a lifetime of social ostracism, but it also spelled out social suicide for his entire family. And sorry about that last part. You probably picked up a little bit of white noise from the amazing storm of rain we are getting, but... After all, the only job the son of an executioner would get is as an executioner. And the only husband the daughter of an executioner could take would be an executioner. Stigma followed hangmen as it would gravediggers, tanners, butchers, prostitutes, vagrants, and thieves. And not surprisingly, hangmen and other dishonorable individuals tended to bond together, both professionally and socially. Executioner dynasties, which I think would be a great band name, sprang up across time, built on both mutual exclusion and strategic intermarriage. These strategic intermarriages and close weavings of a society of executioners, which is also a fantastic band name, came with its own way of doing things. So we have the keystone of law and order in a society being ostracized from society. And instead of hating that which you cannot have, he mimics and strives for it. For example, much like being a cook or blacksmith or woodworker, there was an apprenticeship to becoming a card-carrying executioner. Except they never carried cards, of course. This relationship typically happens within the family unit between a father and son. The following passage comes from the terrific book, The Faithful Executioner. Quote, Today it's Schmitz, and he is an executioner in the Middle Ages and present-day Germany. Anyway, today at Schmidt's request, the local dog slayer, or knacker, K-N-A-C-K-E-R, which is what you called someone who murdered a dog before John Wick references were a thing, had assembled a few stray canines and brought them in his ramshackle wooden cages to the executioner's residence in the heart of the city. Schmidt paid his subordinate a small tip for the favor, 
and removed the animals to the enclosed courtyard behind his house. This is where his son was waiting. Though there was only an audience of one, Franz felt visibly anxious. Pumpkins, after all, did not move, and even pigs offered little resistance. Who, in their right mind, would want to become the classical executioner? Who would volunteer for that detail, knowing they are effectively dooming their family lineage to a generational agreement that they will be hated and looked down on by essentially all of society? Well, sometimes they were handpicked for their station. Sometimes they were spotted in a crowd. Sometimes it was just sheer dumb luck and a series of unlikely events as it was the case for the Schmidt family. Long story short, you typically didn't choose to become an executioner. But as empires grow and judicial systems evolve, some executioners were paid rather handsomely for their service and were seen by many of their contemporaries as prosperous. This, of course, leads to greater disdain at the second half of the 16th century when they saw the emergence of an increasingly global marketplace. And that was a shift especially dire for traditional craftsmen and their products. But rather than direct their anger at the new breed of extravagantly wealthy bankers and merchants, most, quote, poor but honest artisans instead attacked seemingly prosperous executioners. And again, while they themselves were not criminals, executioners were viewed as guilty of the same willful rejection of divine and human laws. Executioners were easy political and economic targets. So public opinion sours on executioners even more. As I mentioned earlier, there is a fantastic book that I pulled from frequently called The Faithful Executioner, and it lays out the trials and tribulations of Franz Schmidt. And while it's a close focus on a single family, and I find that very interesting, and how they climbed out of a social pit, it's all it's a very compelling narrative, I would highly suggest all of you read it. But for our purposes, I think we should look a little more broadly. As judicial systems change and our conception of punishment changes with it, there is less of a need to keep your local decapitator on the government payroll. And this also coincides with less of a reliance on superstition and curses as a way of explaining society and culture, which, of course, is the period we call the Enlightenment. When ultimately, the executioner does his work in private, public spectacle does not entirely disappear. And this is the leap of the episode. Just because the classical executioner largely disappears public execution does not completely find its way into the cultural memory. In some cases, public execution persisted. Now, I'm not saying that the removing of spectacle from many justice systems caused examples of mob violence. No, actually, the first example I'll be discussing for mob violence comes from the French Revolution, when the public torture execution is very much alive, as we learned from Damiens, but it's meant to give you a basis of what mob violence under the guise of justice can look like, and then we can notice it springing up across cultures and across societies through time in the post-executioner period. My thought here is to give the broadest and most accurate description of execution and executioners through time, and I would be remiss not to at least mention examples of mob-based execution when the people serve as executioner as a way to better explain justice 
as spectacle. The following comes from Christopher Hibbert's The Days of the French Revolution. Quote, In Paris there was widespread fear that royalist conspirators, ecclesiastical spies, and other counter-revolutionaries might combine to ensure that the lives lost on that day would be sacrificed in vain. And there was this insistent demand that the army must be purged of officers who might desert to the enemy, as Lafayette did on August 17th, and that all other enemies of the revolution must be rounded up and punished. So essentially, that small passage is setting the stage for you. There's this fear that members of the military and other prisoners might flee or turn against the revolution and everything that came before it would be all for naught. And that fear is the seed for what occurs next, what I'm about to lay out for you. Various propagandists and newspaper proprietors were advocating for an attack on the prisoners being held in Paris prisons. And that's exactly what happens. Mobs gather, assassins take over, and um, these prisons throughout Paris are attacked and their prisoners are killed. With some especially ferocious and macabre accounts like these, and I quote, Neither the police nor the National Guard were much surprised when on a fine afternoon on Sunday, September 2nd, a party of recalcitrant priests who were being taken in six hackney coaches to the prison by an escort of soldiers from Brittany, Avignon, and Marseille. They were attacked by a mob, and the leader of the mob rushed up to one of the two carriages and plunged his saber twice through the open window. As the passerbys gasped in horror, he waved the reddened blade at men and shouted, So this frightens you, does it? You cowards! You must get used to the sight of death! He then slashed the prisoners again, cutting open the face of one, the shoulder of another, and slicing off the hand of the fourth who endeavored to protect his head. Others of the mob then joined in the attack, as did some of the soldiers, and soon blood was dripping from all the carriages, and the horses dragged them on their way to the doors of the prison. Here another mob was waiting, and when those prisoners who escaped unscathed or only slightly wounded tried to escape inside, nearly all of them were cut down and killed before they could reach safety. That same afternoon, another small gang of armed men burst into the garden where another 150 priests were being held as prisoners for the past fortnight were gathered under guard, several of them reading their office. The men advanced upon them, calling out for the archbishop. One of the priests went forward to meet them, demanding a fair trial for himself and his fellow prisoners. A shot was fired, and his shoulder was smashed. The archbishop, after praying for a moment on his knees, went forward to the men himself, saying, I am the man you are looking for. He was immediately stuck across the face with a sword and fell to the ground as a pike was plunged through his chest. Various episodes like this play out across Paris in what is known as the September Massacres. One of the more brutal examples comes from that night of the murders we were just talking about. Quote, one prisoner who did not escape the assassin's blades was Marie Gaudier, a young woman who kept a umbrella and walking stick depository in the courtyard of Palais de Royal. Charged with having mutilated her lover, she herself was mutilated. Her breasts cut off, her feet were nailed to the ground, and a bonfire was set alight between her spread-eagled legs. As corpses were mounted, carts drawn by horses from the king's stables were obtained to take them away to the Montreal quarries. Women helped to load them, breaking off occasionally to dance then stood laughing on the slippery flesh, quote, 
like washerwomen on their dirty linens, just some with ears pinned to the dresses. The carts were full of men and women who had just been slaughtered and whose limbs were still flexible because they had not time to grow cold, so that legs and arms and heads nodded and dangled on either side of the carts being dragged away. I can still remember those drunken men and remember in particular one very skinny one, very pale with a sharp pointed nose. The monster went to speak to another man and said, Do you see that rotten old priest on the pile over there? He then went and hauled the priest to his feet, but the body still warm could not stand straight. The drunken man held it up, hitting it across the face and shouting, I had enough trouble killing this old brute. Now, perhaps these examples, like I said, they come from a period in which public torture execution was still occurring. But what in times when it wasn't? For example, from 1882 to 1968, there were 4,743 lynchings that occurred in the United States. The most famous of which being the lynching of Jesse Washington, when a young man was pulled from the courtrooms and strung up from a tree and continually lowered into a bonfire for two hours. Children used his charred body parts as souvenirs and postcards were made for Waco, Texas, where the uh, lynching took place. So when we look at the executioner and how he was despised by so many, we should ask why. Perhaps he was a reflection of our most terrible instincts that we wish to repress. Maybe he was the mirror to humanity's shadow, our most primal transgressions placed on a stage. Perhaps we were fearful of what he represented for our shared humanity put on display at the September massacres, the lynching of Jesse Washington, or the mob killing of the dictator Muammar Gaddafi that saw him beaten and sodomized with a bayonet. The fact that someone gets up in the morning, goes to work, gets a paycheck, and goes home to his family in full view of the law, killing and torturing human beings, threatens our idea of who kills people. That said, I'll leave you with this. H.L. Mencken once famously said, quote, Every normal man must be tempted at times to spit on his hands, hoist the black flag, and begin slitting throats. I'm Thomas Thompson, and this has been Dirty History. If you like what you heard here, you can get more on our website at dirtyhistorypod.com, dirtyhistorypod.com. You can find us on the social medias, Instagram at Dirty History Pod, Twitter at Pod Dirty, Facebook, just search Dirty History Podcast. We're also on Tumblr. Again, I don't know what Tumblr does. I just repost everything I do onto Tumblr. So if that's the one you use, you're not missing out. Everything goes on Tumblr. Also, what else? Support the show on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash dirty history. Patreon.com slash dirty history. It might just be a dollar for you, but it really, really means everything to the show. The art direction, we do some writing and some research. That all comes from Woodrow Cower, the in-house Renaissance man. You can find him at Woodrow Draws Pictures. He's on Instagram. Some beautiful, um, beautiful, beautiful artwork. You can also uh, get him to do some commissions, maybe some artwork for your own show if you have a podcast. huh? Hit him up. He'd be happy to help. If you pay him, of course. You gotta pay him. That's the prerequisite. Anyway, 
That's Woodrow Cower. Big help with the show. Go on the website, dirtyhistorypod.com. I'll talk to you very soon. We're going to do a back-to-back, a one-two punch. Get this episode. Next one will be up shortly. And you can binge them. Make sure you share with friends. Like and subscribe. Do all that good shit. Thank you very much to those who listen, those who subscribe, and those who support the show on Patreon. You make this all happen. I'm Thomas Thompson, and this has been another episode of Dirty History. Talk to you soon.